Hello and welcome to Farm Bureau Action News. Just kidding. Uh, but I am your host, Garrett Hawkins, today, and I'm joined by Emily Leroy, our senior advisor. And whether you're tuning in at home or whether you're going to catch us after the fact through an archived video or perhaps our podcast series, we're glad that you're joining us because we're going to recap the 2022 state legislative session. And hopefully you're going to find this information to be very timely and hopefully exciting as well because 2022 uh, has been a great year thus far in the form of legislative accomplishments for you, our members. So, so that's where we're going to start. Um, I want to start actually from a point of gratitude and thanking you for the work that you have done, one, in setting Farm Bureau policy, and then two, helping implement Farm Bureau policy. Because we can't do what we do, your team here in Jefferson City at our home office, we can't do what we do in serving you if you're not there with us, um, talking to legislators, as well as working the halls of the state capitol. So, so just know that as we give this update today, know that we are coming from a point of appreciation because you have made a difference throughout the state session, and that will be reflected in the issues that we talk about today. So, Emily, I'd like to start from, from the standpoint well, one, we're taking a back-to-the-basics approach. Uh, no frills here at the Bureau. We're using the flip chart and Sharpie to help illustrate the wins uh, that your organization has worked so hard on uh, this, past, uh, this past year. So I want to start at the high level, though, that in many ways what we have said from the very beginning was this session was about unfinished business. So you all will remember that important ag tax incentives slash credits uh, were left undone last session, as well as eminent domain reform. Those were two of the huge issues that we were carrying forward into this session. But to really set the stage, uh, we knew this session was going to be dominated by two issues, uh, redistricting and primarily debate around getting a congressional map, and then what to do with the influx of federal dollars coming in um, like all other states um, as a result of the pandemic. So Emily, can you maybe, at least as an introduction, first kind of walk us through what that landscape looked like and where we ended up? Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity to be here today, Garrett. So starting from the top with the, the legislative session, we knew going into it that it might be a little bit contentious, might be a little rocky. There were a few bumps in the road, but really the legislature ended up getting a lot done and a lot of Farm Bureau priorities done. But it was often said that there were really only two constitutional requirements to do this year. And as you said, that is the congressional redistricting and then the budget. So starting with the congressional redistricting, we are very happy to report that we have a map. We know that this will be very difficult for you all to see, but we are going to provide a link in the show notes of the podcast and also a link in the comment section. And we encourage you to take a look at that to find out who your new congressman may be. That being said, a lot of the discussion over, especially in the Senate this year, was spent on what, where do these lines go? How do we divide up our state into our eight congressional districts? And so a lot of the conversation was based on should there be a more Republican-leaning district? Should there be a more Democratic-leaning district? And where we ended up was a really kind of a status quo, six Republican, 
two Democrat districts. But it took a lot of work and a lot of negotiation for the legislature to get there. And for those politicos, there was a little bit of excitement on the last Thursday of, of session of how will the Senate get there. And they deployed a not very often seen um, procedural motion to get there. So there was a lot of excitement for us people who watch politics closely. But at the end, looking at your district, um, depending on where you are, it may have changed quite a bit. We saw the Kansas City region shrink quite a bit and become a lot more of a concentrated Democratic district with just Jackson and Clay County. And some of those rural counties like Lafayette, Saline, were divided up into the 4th Congressional District. And then Congresswoman Ann Wagner's district, the 2nd District, it really changed quite a bit and reaches more out into the rural areas and picks up Franklin, half of Warren County. So there were some pretty significant changes to this map. Okay. So again, as Emily said, you can go to the notes section of the podcast as well as this video to find a to find the map, right? Yes. Okay. What about budget? Okay, budget. Budget is also where the legislature spends a lot of their time every year, but especially this year. As you noted, there was an influx of federal money, about $2.7 billion worth of federal money for COVID relief stimulus. We call it ARPA often, the American Rescue Plan Act funds. And so we had the ARPA money, but additionally, there's a lot of additional general revenue right now because our state is doing really well economically and tax collections are up. That's a good thing. The economy is doing well, but because of that, there's more money for the legislature to devote to priorities. And that's exactly what we saw them do. So they ended up approving a $49 billion budget. For context, our state, um, our current fiscal year budget is about $40.9 billion. So we had an increase of about $8 billion in this one year. So a, a significant increase in our budget, but it's going to some really great priorities that we'll get to and cover a little bit later in here. But also it's important to remember that the budget does go back to Governor Parson, who will have an ability to look at everything that's put into the budget. And the governor does have line item veto power over everything that's approved within the budget. So some of those projects could potentially be striked. Okay, so we're going to pause on budget because budget is going to bleed over to some of the priorities that we have had this session that we're going to talk about. But let's start with property rights, okay? Let's pick up where we left off last year, uh, specific to eminent domain. So I think it's very important for our members and others to, to understand that 2022 was really a, a banner year in many ways for private property rights. So those who have been involved in Farm Bureau for years know that property rights is fundamental to who we are as an organization. Has been since the beginning in 1915. And in reality, as we think about the statutes here in Missouri that deal with eminent domain reform or eminent domain, um, 2005-2006 was really the last time that we saw major reforms. And that was after a monumental Supreme Court decision that really sent a tidal wave around the country as foreign bureaus led the conversations in different states to, to reform in the domain, Missouri being one. We had the gold standard at the time, uh, but that gold standard hasn't evolved to keep up with, in particular, what we're seeing in, in the form of electric power generation and, more importantly, transmission. So, so this conversation around eminent domain started as a result of landowners in, in North Missouri talking about a, a for-profit entity coming into the state and Grain Belt Express um, and receiving the power of eminent domain, not on the first attempt through the Public Service Commission, not from the second attempt, but the third attempt uh, at the PSC, they were grant granted the power of eminent domain. 
okay? And so I really want to give credit to the landowners who have been engaged in this discussion for almost a decade now, who have championed the need to, to really look at eminent domain and call into question eminent domain for private gain, which is what we've talked about for years. So, so Emily, we started this session, and, and in reality, as we look at the future of power transmission, this discussion, we saw the need to take it in a much broader approach to, to look at the future, right? Absolutely. So it's really important, like you said, that this started back a fight years ago. And we've discussed here and we've been open that, you know, this bill may not have contained everything that we asked for up front, but we ended up with a very good product. And this, this legislation shows that we can balance property rights and energy security because we know that the energy, the energy sector is transforming over the next five years. I believe we've seen that over the next five years, we expect energy transmission to change as much as it has in the last 35 years. There's going to be a revolution of how we get our energy. And so it was really important and timely that we look at these statutes right now and we have some accomplishments this year to be able to have property rights protections in place for landowners for future projects that will be coming, that we expect to be coming as soon as this summer. And so a few of the very important pieces of this legislation um, in making sure that we give full credit to our sponsors. Representative Mike Hafner has been an absolute champion for property rights for the last several years, and Senator Jason Bean also has been an absolute farmer champion in the Senate as well. And so those individuals carried the torch for us and for all of agriculture and landowners in the House and the Senate to negotiate and to get us where we are. And so some of those top line items that we want to discuss is how does the state award the awesome power of eminent domain? And it was never meant to be for a private company for private gain. It is for a public benefit, for benefit for Missourians. And so that's what this legislation does. It makes sure that if an electrical transmission project is going to be coming across our state, it will benefit Missourians proportionally. So what does that mean? Whenever you have a state or whenever you have an electrical transmission line, and it may be running across Missouri and four other states, let's say that 25% of the mileage of that line is in Missouri, well then 25% of that power delivered needs to be in Missouri. If only 10% is crossing our state, then 10% of the power needs to be in Missouri. So it adjusts proportionally based on the project and who all is servicing. Seems like a very workable, good negotiation, a good compromise to where we have been at in the, over the last several years. Another really important piece that we have looked at is what is fair market value? It's often been asked, you know, what is a fair price for property that I do not want to sell? And so this statute puts in a 150% price floor to begin those conversations. So whenever an electrical company wants to have the conversation about paying a landowner for their land for one of these projects, the baseline is going to be 150% of fair market value moving forward. Building on that just a bit as well, we were able to bolster the, the um, good faith, good nego faith yep. negotiations. So the good faith negotiations within statute are currently there, but this adds a little bit more teeth, a little bit more context of if then a company does not start by offering 150% of appraisal value, then there's an opportunity for the court to award attorney's fees, which is a really, a really big thing for landowners to know that if you are going to go and challenge a condemnation proceeding, that potentially your attorney's fees could be awarded as well. Another piece of this statute uh, change is the change for a disinterested commissioner. What does that mean? The court, whenever they go through these condemnation proceedings, they appoint three people to help determine fair market value. 
this changes that one of those people will be a farmer within the county for tenure, which again, just a good common sense reform. Have somebody who knows what they're doing, who's lived and worked and farmed in the county for 10 years, be a part of that panel to help determine production values. So, you know, throughout session as we had this conversation, you know, it's, it's just, it's really important to drive home the point that, you know, as we think about power generation and transmission, in many ways, we're the envy of the world, right? And the grid that we enjoy today has been built on the backs of farmers and landowners for decades. And we understand the role that we play in this conversation. And certainly we of all people support energy security. But what we're asking for is a respect of private property rights. And in this case, this bill accomplishes that balance, as you referenced, um, and in essence helps take a step forward in leveling the conversation, the ultimate playing field as negotiations happen. And that's, that's the most important thing. And certainly it was a respectful conversation, but one that truly shows that Missouri is a leader in respecting private property rights, and that was shown by this bill. Absolutely. And it took a lot of effort and negotiations on behalf of our legislators and the advocates for farmers and property rights in the legislature, and there are many of them. So we have many people to thank. Many. Many. <laughs> many. And again, coming back to the landowners who brought this conversation forward. Um, this bill may not be everything, but what they have done is start a conversation that truly benefits all Missourians going forward. And we just have to remember that. But we've also, as we think about a banner year for private property rights, there's also a discussion about the Rock Island Rail Corridor, uh, in which the state, uh, I guess, is now the lead in that conversation about its potential conversion to a recreational trail. So Emily, maybe walk us through, this has been an issue that's been in the Farm Bureau policy book for a long time. So walk us through how this conversation unfolded and where we ended. Sure, so the, the easiest way to think about the Rock Island Corridor, it is where the Katy Trail began. So it is a former railroad bed that has been abandoned by the rail system and underneath federal law, the state was able to acquire the property. Through several years, the state decided in December to accept it with the intent to potentially one day take this corridor and turn it into a recreational trail. But we still have quite a few questions that need to be addressed for landowners along before that conversation would proceed. And so this legislative year, with some of that federal funding, it was recommended that maybe $70 million or so should go to developing this recreational trail. That would only develop a portion of the trail. I believe it was about 78 miles of a 144-mile stretch, but $70 million for the potential development of the trail. Um, this leads to a lot of conversations, a lot of questions. How are landowners going to be addressed along the trail? There have been many meetings that the Department of Natural Resources has host and tried to solicit comments from, from landowners, but there's still questions about fencing, about liability, about trespassers. And, and a lot that needs to be worked out. And so we wanted to have a more thorough, thoughtful conversation before we dedicate $70 million to the development of a recreational trail about let's talk about the property rights at stake and have a more thorough vetting of this before we take this corridor and turn it into a state park. And so ultimately the legislature did not choose to fund that. There was, it was essentially zeroed out 
it, there is a little bit of funding dedicated to maintaining the, the uh, corridor, about a million dollars, and that's a privately raised funds. And that is because the state does currently retain that property that stretches across the state, and so there are some needs that need to be met. And so the legislature honored that for the Department of Natural Resources. You know, it's important to note, note that this action is all coming about because of a federal law that's many years old, the Rails to Trails Act, right, that allowed for rail beds to essentially be banked and used for recreational purposes. There's litigation pending in federal court, and ultimately we believe it is so important for landowners to be heard. And that's what this conversation has really been all about. And you've captured well the concerns that are on landowners' minds, from trespassing to fencing to brush removal. What does all of that look like? And so an important conversation. You know, I'm going to check this box on property rights, but it doesn't mean that this conversation or this issue is over. What it means is when I check it, it's red hot with this red marker. Uh, <laughs> what it means is that progress was made for Farm Bureau members and landowners across the state in this category. Absolutely. Hey, let's talk about infrastructure. This is exciting. I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about infrastructure through the years and the budget and infrastructure really intersected this session as we talk about broadband needs around the state. Uh, you all have known, and because you've told us uh, for some time, that broadband should be a priority because of its use on our farms and our homes uh, within our communities. And so um, we have been working closely with the Parson administration for several years. You know, Farm Bureau, Department of Ag, the University of Missouri, DED, we all came together to form, in a historic action, an actual office of broadband in the state. Uh, we have our own B.J. Tanksley, uh, who is now the director of broadband for the state, and all of you know B.J., and he knows the issues of rural Missouri very well in that leadership role. He's in the process of trying to staff said office, but that office has to get to the point of addressing the needs, and that's where this conversation came in with the, the federal dollars. The governor had outlined a bold plan for, for improving broadband accessibility in the state, in large part through a massive investment in infrastructure. So where did we end up in this conversation? Yes, so Governor Parson announced at the Missouri State Fair, I believe at the Farm Bureau building, an investment of $400 million for broadband deployment across the state. And so by the final numbers, the legislature approved $372 million to be invested in broadband deployment across our state. And so one of the largest pieces of that is the development of a grant program to help with middle and last mile infrastructure. So that is that is real connections, that is real improvement. $250 million, which is a huge investment on the behalf of our state. I believe previously the state dedicated $5 million at most to that. So that is a massive increase and we hope to see a lot of really great connections come from that and so we are all relying on the Office of Broadband Development like you said they have a big job ahead of them but they also got support out of this budget which is really important to make sure that the right people are in place to be able to develop these programs and then and then help Missourians essentially. Um, some of the other funding goes to to helping with mapping. There's additional funding for increasing rural telehealth access and then also some assistance across the state with state-owned facilities with um, increasing Wi-Fi capabilities and broadband okay. at those facilities. Okay, so 
massive investment, much work to be done. Have to give a shout out to Representative Lewis Riggs, who <laughs> even prior to being elected to the legislature has been a stalwart champion for broadband. And my gosh, the work he did with his uh, joint committee, I guess is, is what it was. Um, and the work that he did throughout session, like he truly stands out as one of those that is a true voice and champion of the legislature. Undoubtedly. So Farm Bureau was talking about broadband before it was cool. And now when you walk into a legislative office, everybody's like, yes, we are with you. We understand how important broadband access is. And we often talk about it on behalf of rural members because that is the heart of who our membership is. But it's worth noting that there's also a lot of suburban and even urban folks who don't have access to good, high quality internet. And so that's something that the Office of Broadband is going to be looking at as well. And having to weigh all of that of the number of connections versus those who are served or underserved and what are the speeds that people are actually receiving at their home versus what they're being, um, what they're paying for. So, you know, 25 megabits per second up or download and three megabits per second upload used to be the gold standard, used to be really fast. And now we're changing that conversation. It needs to be 100 megabits per second upload and download. And so that's actually going to be in the federal ARPA guidelines of if we're going to be funding projects, let's build for the future. And so there's some really exciting things on deck. I'll also note Senator Eric Burleson from the Springfield area took a real interest in a supporting role in helping in this broadband conversation as well as in that domain, uh, given how his utility bill shaped up. Absolutely. So So Senator Burleson is the sponsor of Senate Bill 820. It was a bill that became a utilities omnibus bill in the House. And so it is really the job of that handler, of that Senate handler, to work with all the folks on all those amendments that were added and to confirm what can stay, what can go. And so Senator Burleson's office did a lot of work on helping escort some final broadband-related legislation across the finish line, and also advocating for the eminent domain legislation. And so it was able to pass on Senate Bill 820 as well. Okay, before I check this box, I want to talk about State Fair, because we're already talking about State Fair. You know in the summer issue of Show Me Magazine, you're going to be getting your State Fair coupons. So State Fair will be coming up, but there were some important investments made, right? Absolutely. So the State Fair has received quite a bit of investment over the last several years, and they received even further investment this year, which is fantastic because we know that the State Fair is the showcase for agriculture and what they do for youth development and youth and agriculture is unparalleled across our state. But it's also something of just heritage for Missourians. When you talk about the historic fairgrounds in Sedalia, they are beautiful buildings and it's worth preserving our history and keeping that intact. But that also comes with There are financial commitments that the state needed to provide, but also build toward the future again. What can we do better? What events can we attract to our state? So looking towards the future, the State Fair was given the authorization to purchase an additional 200 acres of land that join up to the State Fair because that is the last opportunity that the state is going to have to be able to expand before they're essentially landlocked within Sedalia. And so there's a lot of opportunity now as long as that transaction goes through for the State Fair Commission to be able to build for the future, have a vision of what they would like to do with that. And so a lot of that conversation really goes back to Representative Brad Pollitt from Sedalia, um, who helped bring that opportunity to the forefront. So we're very thankful for his leadership and for all the State Fair Commission's 
leadership on helping get that across the finish line. So in addition to that 200-acre purchase, there's also talk about developing a new covered arena. So this covered arena would be something that would really attract additional investment in different activities to Missouri. So we talk about some of these really big events like the National High School Rodeo Final, Junior High School Rodeo Final, and one of the things that Missouri wasn't on the map was because we didn't have literally a, a, um, an arena, a venue, to be able to host them. And so this will help with out-of-state investment, which again is economic development for our state and brings tourism. So between that, investments in additional campsites, maintenance and support of the fairgrounds, the, camp, the fairground had a really great year in the budget process. Okay, green means go. Let's get these dollars out the door once the governor signs, and let's start uh, making sure that this infrastructure gets involved. All right, I really love talking about rural revitalization a lot, and that also dovetails well with unfinished business because clearly um, the ag omnibus bill was really unfinished business, all aimed at rural revitalization. So. Emily, take us take us home with, with this category. Okay, so the first item on our list are tax credits. By this, we mean rural economic development, jobs. Okay. That's what we need to hear whenever we hear about these programs. So we've, we've talked about it many times on Farm Bureau Productions over the past two years. We know this was on the unfinished business list from last year. We got really close to the end of the year for renewing some of these incentive programs that are administered by MASVDA, the Missouri Agricultural and Small Business Development Authority, which is within the Department of Agriculture. And these are programs that help with processing of our agricultural goods that create additional markets for farmers. And so some of these programs, like the Meat Processing Facility Investment Tax Credit, the New Generation Cooperative Incentive Tax Credit, they expired at the end of 2021, and so the legislature was able to offer them a renewal starting immediately upon the governor's signature to get these programs back up and running to continue to make investments in our state. So those are all part of the Agriculture Omnibus Bill, which had many different pieces to it, but some of the other important pieces of that were an ethanol incentive program, or a biodiesel incentive program, so really investing in biofuels and biofuels production in our state, which again, this is all additional markets for farmers and it adds to jobs and it is rural economic development as you said rural revitalization gets you fired up it gets me fired up but also right now it's also supply chain resiliency and in fact we're going to be going out the door with the commentary just talking about the issues that we are facing as farmers and ranchers but really as consumers uh, when you think about baby formula and even last week in apple and we had two-day period in which you couldn't buy gas in town at either station. Unbelievable. And so when I think about supply chain resiliency, I get excited when I think about what's happening in the space of meat processing in the state. That tax credit program is critical uh, to helping meat processors continue to invest in their businesses as well as bring new capacity online. That, folks, not only is rural revitalization, that is supply chain resiliency and ultimately consumer choice uh, with some of these with some of these programs. So we're going to finish up with, you know, what has been one of the hottest, brightest areas of Missouri agriculture, and that's agritourism. Fun fact, um, we, Missouri Farm Bureau, was the first state to actually form an agritourism advisory committee. So I challenge any of our state colleagues on uh, to, <laughs> to challenge me on that because we've been a part of this conversation for a long time. 
And one of the issues that our members have, also, have often brought forward is complications or impediments to actually getting the appropriate signage up in rights of way to advertise their businesses, right? And so there was work done this legislative session and a new program that'll be coming. Absolutely. So there's been a lot of work um, at Missouri Farm Bureau before, Kelly Smith, did a lot of work working with the Missouri Department of Transportation to work on getting a consistent sign program up and going for the state of Missouri for agritourism businesses. But one of the feedback that Missouri Farm Bureau continued to receive is that these signs are expensive and it's a large investment for these businesses, which you know are often quite small and family owned to be able to make and take that gamble of, is this a wise use of my limited resources? And so in the budget year that we had, looking at economic development opportunities, we want to put forward a, a cost share assistance program to help with the affordability of these signs for agritourism businesses. So we are hopeful that this is something that the governor would approve in his budget approval. And it would be a grant program administered through the Lieutenant Governor's office, which makes a lot of sense because the Lieutenant Governor is very supportive, as you know, of Missouri grown and Missouri raised products and also very very well versed and traveled around the state and a great promoter of tourism. So it has found a great home and we're excited to hopefully get that program up and running and kicked off. And just a, a plug for those of our members who are involved in agritourism, we will be having our annual agritourism conference in Joplin coming up in June. So go to mofb.org to, to find information about that. Uh, bottom line, when I think about this category, I'm gonna use bright blue because I think the future is bright when it comes to our rural communities. Regardless of the challenges that we have right now, uh, there are great leaders in place who are trying to do the good work of making sure that we can bring the kids home. And as I think about all of these issues, you know, what drives me in serving you and our entire membership is the opportunity to bring our kids home. And when I say that, there's got to be a farm and a community to bring them home to. And when we fight for property rights, when we fight for sound investment and in infrastructure, and when we work on rural revitalization, it's all about making sure that the future is there for those who are going to come behind us. That's what drives us. And honestly, that's what drives us to finish business uh, for all of you this session. So before we wrap up, uh, let me first note that clearly I'm not ready for primetime news, so all of our <laughs> newscasters, regardless of which market you're in, you're safe. Emily is much better. Um, I get kind of amped up when I'm sitting back here. Uh, but I do want to, as I talk about the future being bright, especially within Farm Bureau, obviously see, you see the talent of Emily joining the team. Um, joined in February and picked the ball up in session and ran with it. And now she is passing the ball to, come on in, Mr. Ben Travelos. He is in day two. Uh, ben is now our Director of State and Local Governmental Affairs. And so Ben will be a point of contact, will also being uh, supported by Emily as we start thinking about not only this election season, but start thinking to the 2023 legislative session. As always, thank you uh, for what you do. Farm Bureau wouldn't be the organization that we are without you, our members. And I'll note that policy development is soon kicking off. Your state resolutions committee will be gathering here in June for its first open hearing. So yes, we no more than finish a legislative session, 
when we hit the start button again and start the conversations about the issues that are facing you as farmers and ranchers, the issues that are facing our communities, and we get to work to figure out how we can continue to finish business for all of you. Thanks for tuning in.